right that it's so dichotomous, but it is really either one or the other. They're either growing in mercy to God, seeing it in our lives being fleshed out, and then showing that mercy to other people, or we're being hardened to that. As we're going to discover today, there's, there's more dichotomies that Scripture offers for us, where it really is just one way or the other, and we can't avoid that. Um, so as we go through today, be thinking about that. As we go through this week, there are no home gatherings. I don't know if you looked at the back of the bulletin. Um, they're all canceled this week. Um, enjoy your time with your family or vacations, those of you that are leaving us. And if you've not already left, podcast people. Um, with that, uh, we do have the parade this week. I want to encourage you guys to be there for that. Um, talk to Tiff and Cassie about that. All right, so as we go in today, um, was trying to read through chapter 2, and Matt always gives me a hard time. I'm, I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. Um, so for me, I just rattle off all the facts. I'll teach each verse for what it says, and I'll do that. Um, that's different than preaching. Uh, preaching, I'm supposed to come up with imperatives, things that we're to do, and then implications or action steps of ways to apply it. All right, so when we look at what is exegetical preaching, as we've talked about before, or expositional particularly, uh, we start with the text. And our, as we prepare, what we're supposed to do is just do the exegesis for ourselves. So we go by, verse by verse, say, what does the text say. All right, we're not bringing our stuff into the text, which would be eisegesis. Uh, we're exegeting the text, right? That's the first step. We're supposed to do as much of that by ourselves as we can. Why? Because we're being led by the Holy Spirit, ideally, right? As we trust the Holy Spirit to lead us in the text, we're going to be able to get the meaning of the text, right? It is not hidden from us. God has revealed himself to us. Now, with that, what do we do with that storehouse of information. Well, if you're just studying, then that's valuable. But what is the Word of God meant to do? What is preaching and proclaiming meant to do? It has an action step. So we take that exegesis, and then we have theological reflection. We take a time where we say, okay, well, what does the text mean in comparison with the rest of Scripture? How does this fit into the New Testament? How does this fit into the idea of kingdom that we spent eight weeks on? nine weeks on it. How does that fit into that? And with the theological reflection, then we, we have some more of the overarching purpose of what is this to do? And finally, that leads us then to land on the application. What, what do we do because of the revelation? So we have studied, we have revelation, and then we must do something. It must initiate change, right? So you admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Christ uh, is your Savior, and you don't just confess, but you change. Paul was converted on the Damascus Road, and his first response after he got his eyes cleared up was to proclaim the gospel. He went and told everybody what was going on. And so it's going to elicit some sort of change if we are really going to the text for what it says it is. Because the text is, the Bible is the only thing that comes with a promise to sanctify our lives. Right, this is stuff that we've all heard. I'm wrapping up like four series right now. With that, all right, we take that and we say, what do we do with narrative? What do we do with narrative? Because this is similar to history, and it's going to change a little bit as we get more to Jesus' ministry. But particularly right now, we've got a lot of history. We had some history that we talked about in the partial kingdom um, and in the proclaimed kingdom. We had those type things. But what do we do with narrative? And as we read through this, it's going to sound, I mean, I could really just read the text like he did, and that's, that's what happened. So what do we do with what happened? I mean, we have the Christmas story today. What do we do with Christmas? 
how do we get into theological reflection on history of things that just happened? How do we apply things of history of things that happened? And I think what it comes down to is really in that theological reflection. We have to take this and not make it mean something. It means what it means. But what does it mean now, right? If it's history, what does it mean now? If we look at our world history, what does it mean now? And we look at Scripture and we look at Christmas, and I think we're forced into this idea of kingdom, right? So I, I went through the text. I, I did verse by verse. I exegeted the text. And then in theological reflection, what do I do with that? How do I make it mean something? Um, what is it trying to say? It doesn't have specific impulses and inclinations and uh, implications in and of itself. It fits within the larger picture. So if, if I were to just stop at chapter 2, I'd be doing a disservice to Luke. Luke's entire purpose is to write a what? An orderly account, the whole thing, not an orderly chapter. It has to fit within his entire account. And so if we're going to then reflect on that one chapter and take it into the full account, what does the history of the birth of Jesus Christ mean? And what does his growing up, because this is the only time we see uh, the, the growing up or the teenage years of Christ. In youth ministry, it's, it's fun to point people to Jesus, but wouldn't you want to ideally point people to Jesus as a teenager? What did Jesus do as a teenager? Did he drive? Did he have a job? I mean, what did he do? How did he go to school? That type of stuff. We don't have that. We have one verse that we're going to get to later today. So how does chapter 2, how does the history, the birth, the growing up of Jesus fit into the overall account of Luke? How does it fit into Luke's writings and Luke and Acts? How does it fit into Scripture? The only way that we can come to any sort of meaning is by following the kingdom paradigm. So as we spent nine weeks in kingdom, uh, gospel and kingdom, and then particularly in covenants, how does Jesus fit within the covenant and the kingdom structure? Well, we're going to see the kingdom has come, right? Which kingdom is this? Hmm? Say it louder. Yeah. Good job. Um, yeah, so kingdom has come. With the arrival of Jesus, the kingdom is here. Right? We're going to hear a lot of that as he gets into his ministry. The kingdom is here. So let's go ahead and just hop into this. The first thing that you're going to see is God's king. All right? Kingdom is defined how? God's people, God's place, and under God's rule. And then if they're under God's rule, there's subsequent blessing. If they're not under God's rule, then there's curse. All right? So if we just kind of roll down this, we're going to go a little bit out of order. But we're going to start with God's king. God's king or God's rule. So you look in chapter 2 of Luke. And the first thing that we see is, is the birth of Christ. What are we coming out of? We've just had a lot of information about John the Baptist. Now, John starts off his gospel talking about who? The Word, the Logos. We see him immediately start with Jesus. We see a creation account where Jesus is the actor. He is the uh, enabler of that. And as we come out of chapter 1 with John, we... Or as we go into Luke, I'm sorry, we, we have this account of John the Baptist. Why doesn't he just start with Luke? Well, Luke's entire idea is to write a historical, uh, very detailed account of the whole thing. It doesn't just start with Jesus. There's a forerunner for Jesus. And as we move out of chapter 1, we have verse 80 that says, The child grew up and became spiritually strong, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, 
to Israel. And in those days, a decree went out. So we move into then the birth of Jesus coming out of the growing up of John. So the scene shifts. We're looking at Jesus now. We heard a little bit about him in chapter 1 as, he's, uh, as the angel comes to Mary. But we move in and it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. So in verse 1 through 7, if you want to write uh, down these structures, we, we have really three parts to God's king. The birth itself, verses 1 through 7. The announcement to the shepherds, it's 8 through 20. And the circumcision and naming is verse 21. As you go through this chapter, we look at 1 through 7, and it talks about a uh, census that was going out that the entire world, or whole empire, I think the Holman does a little bit better at defining that, the whole empire, the Roman empire, was to be registered. They were going to have a census, and then there was going to be Attacks, And I think it's very interesting that um, there just happens to be this new registration. This hasn't happened before. Just now. Right? And then you have this false king, Caesar, taxing, taking what is supposed to go to God. He's levying a tax on the Jews, taking away the money that they were giving to the temple and taking it for himself. So what's the parallel going on here? Why does Luke, besides the historical fact, why is Luke inspired to write this? If you look at uh, verse 4, it says, And Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Have you guys ever wondered uh, why Bethlehem? If it's Jesus of Nazareth, why is it Bethlehem? Why is Bethlehem so important? Is it just where they happen to end up because of the this, this census? I mean, when we look at Christmas story, I, I hope you guys look at it differently after today. But it's always, you know, a little town of Bethlehem, right? Um, you want to sleep too? Why Bethlehem? What's so important about that? What you're going to find as we go through today is you can pinpoint, and I want you to look for each one of these. You can pinpoint each one of God's characters that we talked about last week in this chapter. I could have wholesale stole the entire outline and said it's all right here. Look for each piece. God's character is revealed through, shocking, his son. He, he's always involved. He's always doing this. You're going to see the sovereignty of God, the mercy, the faithfulness. You're going to see all of it in here. Just look for those. Just draw lines. Lines are fun. All right, so Bethlehem. Where does that come from? Micah 5.2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. How awesome is that? You, Bethlehem, who's small and tiny, out of you will come forth for me, God, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old. This is in Isaiah, all right? And he's talking about of old, of ancient, of pre-planned, from ancient days. Jesus is all the way through the Old Testament. We talked about that all the time in Gospel of the Kingdom. He's all over the place. So, so how do we make this, this prophecy come true? Because what happens if the census doesn't happen? Jesus gets born in Nazareth. And then what happens to this prophecy? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It's, it's, it's no surprise that he initiates through the rulers of this world 
a census in order so that Scripture might become true. A little town of Nazareth doesn't really flow as well, right? God is sovereign. Even in the insignificant, somewhat historical-looking facts of Scripture, we can see the character of God. I don't have time to go into depth on every single one of these verses like that. But God's sovereignty is all over these pages. He uses people who are unsuspecting, rulers of this world, who are being selfish, taking money that's not theirs, exerting power that they don't have to accomplish his tasks. So we move in from the birth itself, 1 through 7. It says, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. It seems a little redundant that um, Luke mentions the fact that he's firstborn. Uh, but that has later implications when we look at Paul. And Paul says that he is, what, the firstborn of all creation. He's not just the firstborn as in he gets all the titles and rules of that family, but he is the firstborn of the earth. He's the firstborn to the new creation. We look at he's swaddled like a normal baby. He's put in a feeding trough. Um, you can search for all sorts of meanings if you want to in the fact that they were in a stable. Um, suffice it to say, it's the humility of Christ. We look at Philippians 2, and you see a contrast um, between Philippians 2. It's just a parallel account of the humiliation of Christ and his entrance into this world. It starts by being born of a virgin. It continues on to being born in a stable or in a cave, wherever it may be. He's laid in a manger. And then, interestingly enough, the first announcement comes to who? Caesar, right? Shepherds. Shepherds. Now, Matt and I, another word for what we do is called shepherd. I smell better, even on my worst day, than any shepherd did on his cleanest day. All right? Shepherds were not well-thought-of people. They were stinky. David was a shepherd. He was stinky. All right? Shepherds were not well thought of. They were low, low, low. They weren't involved in the city. They were out in the rural areas, which is much different than where we are. All right? They're not well thought of. And the first announcement of the Messiah comes to shepherds. Now, Matthew likes to kind of glitz it up, right? So we often, with the Christmas story, you know, yeah, shepherds, awesome. But then the three wise men, right? These, these glitzy, glamorous, wealthy dudes show up and that's what we we will typically focus on and we'll, we'll pair those up and luke doesn't mention them luke's entire purpose is to show the humility of christ we're talking about god as a man and as a humble man whereas matthew's interested in showing god or jesus as king so matthew's writing to the jews all right matthew the gospel of matthew is intended for the jews He's writing about God as king. Mark is talking about God, as, or Jesus as man. Or I'm sorry, not as man. Um, as Messiah. He's talking about him as Messiah. Then we look at Luke, and he's talking about Jesus as man. Because the Greeks were interested in men, right? The Olympics, all that. that. And then John is writing to the world. And he's talking about Jesus as God. So we have the deity here. We're going to find much more man-type stuff. And everything about Luke is pointing to Christ's Humility. So we have the manger, we have the virgin birth, we have the shepherds. So we look at them and we find a couple interesting things. All right, so 
Good news is proclaimed to them, right? The angel shows up. It's common in this world that when a new Caesar is born or a king of some sort is born, that a peace and proclamation of joy uh, is proclaimed to the entire kingdom. To the entire kingdom. And that's because of a king. That's because of a Caesar. Here, a lowly, smelly boy is born in a manger in a stable, and angels proclaim peace and good tidings and great joy. And they proclaim it to the lowest of the low. Look at the humility of Christ. So we look at here in, in 1 through 7, 8 through 20, the announcement to the shepherds, and then the circumcision and naming in 21. But we really get a whole wrapping up of Luke's theology. So here in chapter 2, you can kind of see what's coming for you in the rest of the book. The first thing that we're going to see in Luke and theology is the who. As a summary of Luke's Christology. The who. It's, we see a summary of Luke's Christology. So Jesus is of the house of David. He is Savior. This is the only mention in any of the Gospels of Jesus being Savior. And he is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And He is Lord. That is Luke's theology. And we see it incredibly poured out at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, flip over to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14. We see Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit has come down. And this is what Peter has to say. And this is Luke writing this account, right? This is an Acts. Same author. Verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter again, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend, ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Finally, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's a sermon in itself. But we see here Luke's theology of the Christology of Christ as Savior, as Messiah and Christ, and as Lord played out in chapter 2, and then in Acts chapter 2, after he's ascended. It stays the same. The plan has always been the same. Jesus is not plan B. Gentiles are not plan B. It stays the same. His theology is clear. The second thing we see is the purpose. And the purpose is restoration. This one's short and easy to see, but the angels proclaim this. Say glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. See that the heavenly host sings of peace. That wholeness of life which God grants to persons and societies through a restoring of balance and all the forces of creation with which influence our lives. This eschatological hope will be fulfilled in Jesus. The entire point that we saw of rest, the entire thing that we saw of redemption coming with kingdom, as we bring kingdom forth, we are redeeming those people and places around us. That's what this is. The purpose of Christ's coming is restoration. He's restoring lost people to himself. last thing that we see there is the intention. The kingdom is for the lowly. The kingdom is for the lowly. See that Luke's guest list for the kingdom of God includes the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame. As we go through the miracles of Christ, we're going to see all the different people that he uh, not just encountered, but targeted, really. The type of people that he had mercy on were the lowly. He didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. What's interesting about the angels appearing to the shepherds particularly is that we get to see the tie between the servant king David with then the new servant king that comes as a result line of David. David was promised a king that would sit forever. And the first people that hear about this are the shepherds. God's perfect first king, David, because Saul was not him has now an heir who will reign forever on his throne. And he is a shepherd king. The Jews were not looking for a shepherd king. 
They were looking for a Joshua, a conquering type of judge or king. They were looking for someone that would kick out the Romans. And they still are looking for someone to deliver to them what they believe the promises are due. So ultimately, at the end of the birth account, we find that the stable is bare, but the glory of God floods the entire story. We see his sovereignty, we see his hand, we see his glory flooding the entire thing. There is not one miracle here. These are all natural accounts, and God is still all over it. For some reason, we think that we have to have a miracle in order to have God working. That is not true. God is always involved. Sound like last week yet? <laughs> He's intimately involved in what we are doing. We don't have to have a miracle in order to have God's hand on our lives. So the implication of God's king is to live under the kingship of Jesus. Live under the kingship of Jesus. We have at the beginning of this story a king or a Caesar who is trying to take that place. If you look at the other accounts, I believe Matthew has one on Herod. Herod kills all the newborn babies that are male in order to hopefully kill Jesus. While Jesus and his family goes to Egypt and eventually fulfills another prophecy, it says he came out of Egypt. We have kings on this earth that don't know what they're doing. God has appointed them and we're to live under them, but ultimately we're living under God's kingship. As we live under his rule, we will find his blessing. If we don't live under his rule, we will find curse. Second thing is God's people. God's people. As we move out of the story of the birth and we move out of the shepherds, the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. We move into verse 21 and we see a, a shift of story again. It says, When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus. Shocker. The name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What's interesting is if you look at these accounts, there's, there's, he just listed them, the there's two sacrifices that go on. One is redeeming the firstborn back from the Lord or back from the service of the temple. So Samuel was dedicated to the temple, right? He was to stay. Most firstborn were bought back, basically, from the temple so that they could stay with their family. The second offering that we saw is the uh, purification sacrifice, which is the one that he lists of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Um, it, in other accounts, it's a lamb and a pigeon, or for people who are poor, it, like they are, it's a pair of turtle doves. So what's interesting is if you look at the accounts, Luke doesn't specifically name this one, but they only pay the purification one. They don't pay the redeeming back one. Jesus is dedicated to the temple, just as Samuel was, and we're going to see that pop up later. But Jesus' parents don't pay the, the buying back one. They only pay the purification one. So Jesus is, is named as a, a ward, if you will, of the temple. That's going to pop up later, just as Samuel. So then we move on into 25. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. So as we look at God's people, we first see that he was named Jesus, or Joshua, or Yeshua, which means salvation. 
Jesus' parents represent the best of Jewish piety and obedience to the law of Moses. If you feel like doing this, I don't know if you write in your Bible or not, underline every time you see in chapter 2, law of Moses or custom or something similar to that and, and count how many times it happens. We see that Mary and Joseph act in perfect accordance with the law of Moses. Now, already, even when Jesus is kicking and screaming. Day 8, he's circumcised. Then he's brought and he has the sacrifices. Then he's brought again to be dedicated. We see them acting in perfect obedience and Jewish piety to the law of Moses. Now what's interesting as we, as we move through here is you see that uh, all the major writers of the New Testament are dealing with some sort of issue of continuity or discontinuity. You're going to see them taking up a, a, an argument or a stance and they're going to be dealing with continuity of, of something or discontinuity of something. Why we should continue to do this or why we should discontinue to do this. For instance, Paul finds continuity in Abraham, but he finds discontinuity in the role of the Mosaic Law. And you see him battle those two back and forth as he deals with continuing on the promises of Abraham, yet for some reason not continuing on with the, Abraham, or the Mosaic Law, which is supposed to be in conjunction, right? As you read Paul, you discover why they're not. Matthew finds continuity in the call for a righteousness, which exceeds that of the scribes um, and Pharisees. So he, he sees that we still need righteousness. In fact, it must be more righteous than the people who keep the law perfectly. So there's something that we're missing. The epistle to the Hebrews relates the old and the new on the pattern of shadow and substance, finding that the perfection of the old is in the new. So he has a discontinuity in the old because the continuity is that the new makes the old perfect. Yet none of them sets Jesus and the church so thoroughly within Judaism until rejected, as does Luke. So you have the continuity of Judaism, the temple, the law, and then you have Jesus, the new, the continuity of how does he keep this and then ultimately make it perfect. Does that make sense? Okay. We've not read the other three, so <laughs> make sure that makes sense. We have continuity and discontinuity going on here, and then ultimately we find here that Jesus is compared to the church. The discontinuity of, the, of Judaism of the temple is then superseded by Jesus and the church. So Simeon says here, this is an interesting account, he says there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. Looking forward to the consolation of Israel in verse 25. It says, and the Holy Spirit was on him. This is before Pentecost. Holy Spirit resides on different people and for brief amounts of time. Holy Spirit was on Simeon when he said this. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Now, I was thinking about this on the way here today. How long was it between Malachi and Jesus? 400 years. I don't see an age for this guy, all right? <laughs> we have an age for the next person. She's like 84-ish. What happens if he was born like right after Malachi? And the Holy Spirit says, you will not die until you see the Messiah. He's awesome. This is sweet, right? And his 80th birthday rolls around. I was like, this is cool. He's got to be coming sometime soon. And then he's like 150. And he's like, where is Jesus? Why am I still alive? Right? No one else? Okay, I thought it was funny. It was... It was 6.30, but anyways. Um, he was not to die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. 27, 
Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple complex. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praise God, and said, Now I'm very acquainted with this now, having a newborn infant and people just showing up and staring at your kid. Uh, we were at the roadhouse yesterday, and this cute little girl comes in, and she just like, <laughs> right at her, just stares at her. Um, so I'm getting more acquainted with people just coming and grabbing my child. But uh, this old dude comes and takes up Jesus in his arms, praise God, and says, and this is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says, now, Master, you can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. Amen. That, that is, that's Jesus. That is it. That is his entire purpose. That's his entire purpose. You can dismiss your slave in peace as you promised. He's faithful. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He's faithful. For you have prepared it in the presence of all people. You are sovereign and you are faithful. And light for the revelation to the Gentiles. You are merciful and glory to your people, Israel. You are faithful. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. The girl yesterday, when she looked at my daughter, just stared. She didn't say anything remotely close to this. And I was not amazed. <laughs> they were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. The sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon's word to Mary is that Israel's consolation and the salvation of the Gentiles will not be without a great cost. Jesus will bring truth to light and in so doing, throw all who come in contact with him into a crisis of decision. In that decision, rising and falling, life and death result. So yes, my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and a glory to your people, Israel. Hallelujah and amen. But many will rise and fall in Israel, and he will be a sign that will be, will be opposed. The sword will pierce your own soul, and the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So Anybody that comes in contact with Jesus, anybody that comes in contact with Jesus will have to make a decision. And that decision is going to determine life and death as a result. So Jesus precipitates the centrally important movement of one's life. You're either going toward God or away from God. This is the great danger in becoming a proclaimer of the gospel, whether preacher or whether Christian, you are always saying something about God. The things that you are saying are either going to be lies about God, sin, or truth about God, giving Him glory. Now because of your life and your claim on Christ, because of my call as a minister of the gospel to proclaim and preach the word, 
I need to understand every time that I get up here, every time that I'm preparing and praying through a message, that what I'm saying is going to force people into a decision. You're either going to accept what Scripture says or you're going to reject it. I, in preparation, am either going to accept what it is telling me or I'm going to reject what it is telling me and I'm going to move farther away from God. Anytime we live out the gospel or claim the name of Christ, we are forcing those around us into a decision. Light is being cast, and any time that you cast light, you will have shadows. Only in perfect darkness is there one type of color. In any amount of light, you will have shadows. As we cast forth the light, we have to be careful that we don't neglect the shadows. There's a pain and an urgency demonstrated in Simeon's final words to Mary. The pain of a sword piercing her own soul. The parent is going to have to bury the child. My daughter is an incredible blessing in my life, but I don't know what I would do if I was told that I would have to bury her. I, I can't even imagine that concept. It scares me enough when I walk in and she's, she likes to cuddle into everything, so I'm always afraid she's not breathing. And it's, it scares me. But to know that I'm going to have to bury her one day would destroy me. Yet what's the purpose? He's the salvation for all people. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. People will have to make a decision. There's a pain there, and there's an urgency. And God forgive me for not having an urgency for the loss that Simeon illustrates. We're not seeing that every time that I am around people, I am saying one thing or the other about God. And that my life and my speech must point to a Savior because they will have to make a choice because I happened upon their life and showed them that Jesus exists. Once Jesus is on the scene, the kingdom has come and there is no excuse anymore. If we don't take that urgency into the world, we are missing the point. The other small tidbit in here is that he calls it a sword piercing her own soul. Jesus, according to John, is called the Word, right? The Logos. And we find in Ephesians that the sword of the Spirit is what? The only offensive weapon we have. <laughs> Jesus is the Word. And the what Word of God, according to, I believe, Paul, says that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to split apart the intentions and thoughts of man's heart, even down between the bone and the marrow. And then he says that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is the word. He is the sword. And he has come here in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, to make us have to decide. To make us have to decide. And after that, we go into Anna's testimony. It's a prophetess, Anna. She's a, roughly 84. She was a widow for 84 years, so she's probably older than that. But she did not leave the temple complex. Keep in mind, in the temple, women were only allowed in the outer court. This account seems to be happening in the outer court because Simeon's talking to Mary who would not be allowed in the inner court. 
And then Anna is also there. So they're, they're out in the public eye of the temple when all this is happening. And she says, or she doesn't really say, she came and began to thank God and speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. 400 years. And Simeon is saying, your salvation has come. Israel, who has been waiting, who has been promised this, and is now under subjugation of the Roman Empire, finally has their Messiah in the temple in Jerusalem. Consolation of Israel is here. Anna is coming and telling everybody that Jesus, the Messiah, is here. And she's pointing to the baby of a carpenter and a woman who had a child before she was married. And that's the Messiah. And what happens here is we have two aged saints, and they represent Israel in miniature at its most devout, most pious. This is their, their best. All right? Israel at its best is these two old people. They're devout, they're obedient, they're in constant prayer, they're led by the Holy Spirit, they're at home in the temple, they're longing and hoping for the fulfillment of God's promises. 400 years God has been silent and this baby comes on the scene. Christmas should not mean the same thing anymore to us. You look later in Luke in chapter 24, verse 44, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And these people are coming up and Simeon's quoting Isaiah prophecies about Christ. Anna's saying that this is the one who's bringing redemption to Jerusalem. What's the implication here? Humble yourself. Live in the light of God, not men. Humble yourself. Live in the light of God, not men. Who are God's people? God's people are the lowly. God's people are the lowly. He uses the foolish to confound the wise. In youth ministry, we're supposed to look for uh, initiative. We're supposed to look for uh, people who have a lot of I'm looking for a word. It starts with I. Can't think of it. <laughs> what? Oh, okay. Um, gonna, it's going to come to me after this. It happens every week. All right, anyways, we're supposed to look for people who have a lot of potential. It starts with a P, not an I. Potential. <laughs> Told you. All right. People who have a lot of potential. We're supposed to identify them. We're supposed to start training them and make them leaders, right? Because they have the skill set. They have the initiative. They have the gusto to make it happen. And what I found in, in a very short time, I've only been doing this for, what, eight years? They usually fizzle out. Why? High school happens. Girls happen. Cars happen. Money happens. College then happens. And God repeatedly proves that we are looking for the wrong type of people. God did not come and pick the people who have it all together. I'm not saying that they can't do anything. But I do find that when junior and senior year come around, and then four years later when they're out of college, the people who stick around are the lowly. The people in youth group who no one wanted anything to do with. People who were not popular. People that didn't have it all together. And God uses them to confound the people who have it all together. The people who in eighth grade you say, you're going to be something one day. And they end up doing nothing. The people who no one even pays attention to are the people who stick around, the people who love Jesus with all their heart, the people who 
confound the wise, go against the culture, say that it's not all about potential. It's about what God has done in my life. And our culture and our world wants to live in the light of men. We want to be popular. We want to have all the potential. We want to ace all of our tests. We want to be the engineer, the doctor, the guy who's saving the world. And God doesn't use those people because they're too busy saving the world on their own. If we humble ourselves and become the lowly and not have to be the best at everything, but simply live in God's spirit and power, as Luke says later in Acts, then we will have power and we will be witnesses to all the world. And the people who were doing nothing are now in Africa leading 3,000 people to Christ in Malawi. Well, the guy who had all the potential is either strung out on drugs or he's just making it big on Wall Street. Good for him. Humble yourself and live in light of God, not men. Be God's people. Accept that you're a sinner and that we just need God. Finally, God's place. The family returns to Nazareth and, Nazareth, and when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, where is that again? They returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Remember John, the Baptist? Here he is again. This is your parallel. Chapter 1 was a parallel between John and Jesus, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> the author says, you know what, John, we're just going to be silent about you, and... Jesus' turn. We have one verse that recalls back a parallel for how John grew up. The child grew up in verse 80, became spiritually strong. Then back in chapter 2, the boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. So there, again, if you've been underlining all the laws of Moses, the customs, the law of the Lord, all that stuff, how many do you have now? Depending on what version you have, it's like five to seven. All right? Luke's very clear that his parents are keeping the law of Moses. Why is it so important that they keep the law of Moses? Because if Jesus doesn't perfectly keep the law of Moses for us, then his righteousness is not earned for us. We can't keep the law of Moses perfectly, so we need someone that could. And it's Jesus. His parents are very careful to keep the law of of the Lord. So he's come back, if not for his bar mitzvah, then for, this is age 12-ish, uh, but for Passover. So it says then in 41, every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was with the traveling party, they went for a day's journey. This is not uncommon for a child to get kind of lost. Um, and not be noticed for a day. Well, I should put it that way. Um, they don't necessarily just go lost, but amber alerts everywhere. But um, it's not uncommon for them to you know, be misplaced for a day. Uh, when you have an entire family going uh, in a caravan, and they're all going into this place, there are tons of people. And with all that family around, you kind of assume you know, uh, they're in there. <laughs> At, at 12, it's different with an infant. But at 12, they're, they're in there. And they notice at the end of the day that he's not there. So they go back. And after three days, they find him in the temple complex, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. All those who heard him were astounded. Astonishing, right? That's great. Um, 
astounded at his parents, at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now, I, I'm not trying to read into the text here, but Jesus is Jesus, right? He's perfect. He's without sin. Not that he's not without mistake, all right? So he probably used crowns on the wall. But relatively speaking, we're dealing with a pretty good kid, right? <laughs> and mom shows up and says, Jesus, why are you treating us this way? Now, Jesus had brothers and sisters, all right? But, and, and they were sinners. So you have this contrast, right? Anytime something broke, Jesus is like, and it's over, right? <laughs> Done. Um, here, I mean, think of the contrast. He's like perfect. And I, again, learning being a new parent, but concerned when I can't even find my daughter in my own house, <laughs> right? Before it was two rooms, now bigger than my parents, but two rooms and I can't find my daughter because I don't know where she's sleeping because she curls up in a ball on her blankets. Freaks me out. Trying to find her in a temple or in a city as big as Jerusalem with all the people there. Going to scare me. So you have perfect Jesus scaring his mother out of his mind, out of her mind. And she comes up to him and says, why are you treating us like this? We'd expect this of your brother James, um, but not you. That's what I, that's what I see in here. Um, that's why you don't read in the scripture. Um, with that, we have this most interesting answer. This is the first time you see the red letters uh, in Luke. It says, why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. So God's place. That's the temple. God's place is the temple. Yes, Jesus is here, but where is God's place still? The temple. That's where the presence of God is. And he has to be with his father. Luke uses the same but different meaning type word in Greek for father. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I had to be in my capital F, my father's house. He finally claims it for himself. At age 12, he understands that he's the son of God. Age 12, Jesus understands that he is the son of God. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. But Jesus knows the word so well that at age 12 he knew he was the Son of God. He knew the word so well by the power of the Holy Spirit, not because of any innate ability of being God, setting that aside and simply reading and studying and being with his Father, understands that he is God and he's able to teach scribes and the Pharisees who are around him. All of them. 12 year old keeping up with them. The guys that have the entire law of Moses memorized. How does he do it? How does he do it? He spends time with the Father. He spends time in the Word. He spends time being who he's supposed to be, modeling what we're supposed to do. 
If we talk about having a relationship with Christ, let's look at Christ's relationship with his own father. Perfect relationship. He does it by being with him. And finally, Luke 2.52. Entire ministries are based off of this one verse. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Flip over to 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's after Ruth. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Two twenty six. It says, "By contrast, the boy Samuel grew in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men." Samuel dedicated as a prophet to the temple. Jesus dedicated to the temple. Messiah, Christ, servant, King, grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. What's our implication? Make time to rest at his feet. Make time to rest at his feet. Look, can we all just agree to stop telling people that we're busy? I'm really tired of hearing that. I use a variation of it. It says I have a lot to do. (laughs) That's what I say. I think it's a little bit better than saying I'm busy. We can fill up every hour of the day. And sometimes we have to, all right? This week was rough for us. We had to fill up every hour of the day. But the only time that I actually felt like I had rest this week was when I was studying. We have to make time. Satan will fill up every second of our day. He really doesn't have to work hard. We're interested in a few things. He just dangles them. And all of a sudden, we're out of the work. We're out of relationship. We have to make time to sit and rest. It's the whole purpose of kingdom is rest. Rest at his feet. Think about this. If you were to die today, I'm not doing a salvation message. I'm doing a study message right here. If you were to die today, and you did go to heaven, and yes, the most awesome part of that is going to be seeing God as he is. That's, I'm so jazzed for that. But think about this part. If you were only able to take the knowledge that you had with you currently of Christ and of his word through the rest of eternity, would you be happy? What are you doing to make sure that you go to heaven with a much better understanding of Christ and what he's done? Make time to rest at his feet. If you're going to be God's people, you might as well be in his place. God has an amazing place for us at his feet to hear his word. And for some reason, we're everywhere else. Make time to rest at his feet. Humble yourself, live in the light of God and not man. And live under the kingship of Christ. He is the perfect king. He is a servant king. And he will take care of every need you will ever have. And fulfill anything you could ever want.
a few more songs to sing as we continue to worship. Um, we have a new song. It's called 10,000 Reasons. Think of all the reasons. Just think of them. We have one good reason. He saved us. There's another good one we can sit at his feet. It's a privileged place to be. Let's pray and continue in worship. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for what you've done. We thank you so much for coming to live with us. Father, that you were, did not just create the world as we see in John, but Father, you, you stayed here. You are actively involved in everything we do. You are merciful. You are patient. You are sovereign in control of everything. But Father, you are faithful. After 400 years of silence, after all the prophecies of the Old Testament, we see not just a whisper, but Father, a loud shout from the heavens that you are here with us. And Father, you are making all things new. We love you and we thank you for what you're doing. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.